0: It might be getting stale. Okay, let's make it fresh. Let's make it fresh. Fresh. Hello and welcome to Fresh Aesthetic, the show where we discuss topics like creativity, popular culture, self-acceptance, and more. My name is Stephen and I'm joined by my co-host Matt. Hi Matt, and welcome to the show everyone. Let's hit it. Wow, today, the big one, the one and only, the Enneagram. Mm. It's been hyped up. Hopefully uh, it's worth it for listeners after all this hype. But um, yeah, talking about the Enneagram today, it's a humongous topic. And there's no way we can cover all of this in one episode. So um, that said and out of the way, what is the Enneagram? Well, goodness me. It's like a nine-sided diagram that looks like a pentagram like a some okay. sort of Satanist ritual that you're going to perform. Okay. Um, you, if you've seen Google Images of the diagram, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. If not, just type Enneagram into Google Images and you'll know. Well, specifically with the Enneagram today, I wanted to talk about shadow work. And shadow um, is uh, defined by theartofwellbeing.com. And we're going to have a lot of sources today. I'll do my best to put them all in the show notes for you so but yeah i'll just cite them along the way as well Um, but shadow is a degradation of consciousness preventing us from receiving impressions interpreting them in a non-distorted way the enneagram is among other things a map of the nine patterns of distortion far be it from nine descriptions of who we are the enneagram helps us to locate and study when and how we are not being ourselves so, I mean, right off the bat, like, it can be simplified and say, well, it's a typology. It's a nine-sided diagram of saying the nine types of personalities there are. And that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. Um, and and you do see a lot of uh, ways that Instagram has kind of cheapened it a little bit because um, it does have very rich spiritual heritage. And, I mean, back when it was first invented um people wouldn't talk about it they wouldn't talk to each other about it because it was so personal and it was so spiritual it was like a sacred thing almost um and then on instagram today you see the ways that it's kind of being cheapened down into memes Mm. so and there is power in, in in laughing at different ways that we we are in the world of course but um I really liked this quote because it's talking about how Ian Morgan Cron says it the best way. And I love this quote. Uh, He says that the Enneagram, like people's critique of it is often that it's putting me into a box and they're like, people get worked up about that. Like don't, you can't put me into a box, but the Enneagram is actually trying to show you the box that you're already in. And it's trying to break you out of that and broaden your mind a little bit and show you that you're actually stuck in a narrative or a way of thinking that it's kind of like the false self almost. You think you have to be a certain way in order to gain the things you need. And it comes in childhood when you have a wound or something happens and then personality develops. Um, And there's a good quote about personality from um, Beatrice Chestnut in her book, The Complete Enneagram. And I will just find it here.
1: While you're finding that, let me just say, because I think this was important for me in understanding the Enneagram, it's not a personality test, which is the first thing when you ask somebody, oh, you know, have you looked at the Enneagram, you know, what number would you be? People go, oh, I haven't taken a test yet. And it doesn't work like that. You don't go online and find a test. Well, you do actually, and uh, it completely will not help you <laughs> because it's not designed to just give you a quick answer. It's designed to be what you said a bit of a spiritual meditation on self and the world around you and because it's been because we live in a world where we want quick answers i think the refreshing thing about bringing it into this podcast today is we're not talking about a personality tests we're, we're talking about the deeper uh, we we almost think back to that sacred part of its roots to go let's let's restore the Not mysticism, but maybe the uh, let's restore the the sacredness of looking at self and discovering oneself because that is uh, you know that's that's very important Um, when you're looking at yourself to be able to look at to go on deeper levels and not just you know look at the top player.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, So I found this quote here, and it says the term personality generally refers to the part of your character. That develops to interface with the outside world our personalities are shaped through the intersection of our innate qualities and our early experiences with parents caregivers family and friends as well as other influences in our physical social and cultural environments most of us think of our personality as who we are we equate the idea of personality or the you, who the people in your life would say they know, with our sense of identity. But according to the Enneagram, you are more than just your personality. The personality that you and others associate with yourself is only part of who you are. As in Western psychology, the Enneagram views the personality as a false self that develops to allow your vulnerable and young true self to adapt fit in and survive among other humans this perspective holds that personality is a defensive or compensatory self whose coping strategies develop to help us fulfill our needs and reduce our anxieties so it's kind of this mix of nature and nurture this, this blend and then of course as you grow up and you associate with your peers and things happen and you might get bullied or whatever it it starts to shape your personality and it, it almost becomes this coping mechanism or this this method that you use to get your needs met um, and that the Enneagram is all about just highlighting the narrative that you thought was it that was the the one true thing that you had to do your entire life and showing you no know, actually there's there's plenty of other ways of being in the world and you don't have to stick to this narrative in fact first identifying the narrative and then breaking out of it is very very valuable and is part of the journey to a complete and whole self
1: mm. yeah I remember as a teenager that you know people would be like just be you just be yourself. And I never really was able to identify who I was and who myself was. Um, and I think it is hard for a lot of people. And so they think that their personality is themselves, maybe their lifestyle choices or their behavior, that this is the the, the climax and the definition of who the, their self is. And we've seen that in an extreme version today as people um, identify with anything under the sun, you know, um, if it can be, if a label can be put on it, you can identify with it. And we've even taken medical conditions and made identities around medical conditions. We've made identities around, um, sexuality, made identities around everything under the sun in order to try and find whatever every human being is looking for, which is inside of us. And that's the self. And we might always catch a glimpse of self, in one tiny aspect but what we're terrible in, in the story of my life um is is almost staking that tiny part of my personality as the full definition of who I am um you know when you, you're younger you in, in high school anyway it was like oh what music do you listen to and then you'd be oh you know I, I'm a, a raver or you know uh, that's de- now defined who I am and how I should act um or I'm uh a troublemaker, you know, I am in trouble with the police. That now has comes to uh, become an identity ad- statement for us. And I think it's not until we're older that we a lot of these stickers fall off and we start going. Wait a minute, this doesn't really. The thing that felt so freeing, where I was getting my identity from, has now become the cage which is stopping my growth. And I think. When we're talking about personality, I think personality plays the same role, where when we do these personality tests, we can jump onto something and go, well, this is who I am, I finally found me. And all we found is another tiny facet of behavioral activities, and we can build a camp around it and go, well, this is, this is who I am. But actually, it will become, if we think like that, it will become the cage later in life That we'll feel trapped by. And that's, I think, why people say, I don't want to do a personality test because I don't want to be put in a box because they have, they know what it's like. We know what it's like to put ourselves in boxes. And I think we, the the true self of who we are, and I don't know if this is too mystical, um, Stephen, or or if you relate to this, but I feel like the true self of who we are can only ever really be experienced. Um, I, I don't know if we can logically create a list on an a4 pad in a a knowledgeable way of who we are i think we can grab aspects but until you experience yourself which generally comes in um as we've talked about the path of descent, it comes in isolation it comes in basically when all the distractions of life are moved to the side and you get out your own way that is when you begin to experience yourself and it's something that until you've done it you'll never fully grasp how to do it um but life will help you get there I'm sure I don't know if there, any of that um aligns with you Stephen or, or how you feel in your experience and discovering yourself
0: yeah absolutely first of all it'll never be too mystic for me it's <laughs> <Yeah, that's> good <laughs> I'm here for it all um yeah oh there's so much in there to unpack but um it does come with a lot of disclaimers. Um, so like you say, the tendency can be to, like, oh, I want to learn about my personality, and then you discover, oh, this is the box that I neatly fit in, or this is this is me, this is who I am, and nobody can tell me otherwise. So that's one of the many traps you can fall in. Um, another trap you can fall in is using it as a weapon to type other people and reduce them down to a number. which completely misses the point of the whole exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, It just, it turns it into a weapon and it's just not at all what it was made for. And again, about putting you in a box, like it's about showing you the box that you're already in. Mm -hmm. So it's about breaking you out of your own box. So I will go into some basics, but really if you want to get into it, you can take the test online, but it just be warned, it, they are quite inaccurate sometimes and for me it was a case of just reading a book on it and I'll tell you the book in a second um, and then just sitting with the descriptions for months. Like It took me a good six months to really feel out all of the descriptions and understand where I fit into it. Um, and I, I mistyped myself and quite often you will mistype yourself. Um, and then later on think oh hang on no I think actually I'm this other number um, so there's that aspect of it and remember don't just use it to type your friends like oh what's this person I mean it's it's kind of a natural tendency to want to do that to, to put everybody else into boxes and go oh that's why they do this or, or say oh you're being such a nine or you're being such a two um, so again, it's kind of that weaponizing way of looking at it. Please don't do that. That's not what this tool is for. And that's, um, that's a good point because when I
1: read the Enneagram types and I started looking more into it, and I don't know if this is going to help somebody who, who might be looking into this, I knew when I had found me, when I was reading his description, not that I Uh, necessarily could could identify with the behavior, but I identified with the motivations in myself and it felt very vulnerable. So at that point it had gone beyond like, oh, I act like this, I do this, but it was like, how does this know me? And and it was like nothing that I wanted to scream from the rooftops in that moment. It was a vulnerable like, oh, shoot, you've just described the way I feel and think inside. That's right. Yeah.
0: Um, and that's it. And I had an analogy that I was thinking about earlier where if it's hurting and it's starting to feel extremely vulnerable, like you just said, you're probably on the right track. Yeah. <laughs> if it's not feeling like cringy and wince, winceworthy, um, you're probably not quite there. You'd need to do some more digging. Uh, it, it almost feels like I don't know, if you're getting a massage and, and suddenly the masseuse hits the muscle with the with the tension in it and it feels like death. Yes like they've just hit the rock solid, um, tense shoulders <laughs> you have and found the right muscle and you're like, Oh my goodness, I mm. feel like I'm gonna die from this. Yeah. It, it's a similar thing and it's and it's a it's a path of descent, it's a suffering, but there's so much goodness there and of course that's why we're talking about it today, because Fully believe in it um, and what it, what the change it can make in your life. So when I first got into it, there was some, um, a resource that I started on that is an excellent way to start. It's The Road Back to You by Ian Cron. And it's just a really simple breakdown of all of the numbers and... It do, it's not just, like, superficial, though. It's simple, but it's still also very profound. It, but it's a very good intro or gateway drug into uh, figuring this out. First of all, I had this feeling inside me of, like, I need to do some deep inner work because, I don't know, I just had this sense that the stories I was telling myself were dragging me down, and that's where it started for me was this knowing of, like, man, I need something to help. And I don't know where I heard about the tool where I first stumbled across it, but I found this, this book um, probably referenced in some other literature I was reading or something, which was The Road Back to You. And man, what a good book. Great starting point. So highly recommend it.
1: Before you jump on, you said something really interesting there. And I think I know that we would have the tendency to, to jump further into this. But you just said something that I think is so key to fully comprehending this. The stories that you were telling yourself, you almost said it as like a passing comment. That is a huge new topic for people. It's uh, almost become a jargon around the Enneagram. Can you break that down? What do you mean by the stories you tell yourself?
0: Yeah, well, I guess I didn't have that particular language for it then. But I just knew there were things in my life that like almost self-sabotaging habits and and it's very subtle stuff like it's it's hard to see at first and that's probably why you don't either care about it or notice it in your early 20s is because it is so subtle and um Ian Cron talks about in the book how we go on autopilot as humans we just we just get we're on cruise control man we're going down the highway cruise control button's depressed we're not thinking about the things we're doing or the way we're doing them and we're definitely not noticing patterns in our lives that are destructive and i mean there might be some things you notice and some people will be more uh, self-aware than others but for the most part you don't see it because they're your blind spots and everybody has them you might think "Oh, i don't have any blind spots i'm pretty self-aware trust me you've got blind spots yeah
1: yep, yep and so these things form behavioral patterns in our life that we eventually hopefully come to realize look back on and go shoot this isn't the real me this is something i've learnt this is a pattern this is a, a as you put it a story that you're living out about yourself but it's just a learnt behavior and it's not, it's not um, just to get away from the superficial side here, this, we're not talking about learned behaviors like, oh, I always uh, criticize people. Okay, that could be an example, but it's a very superficial. We're talking about behaviors here, like why you always avoid, um, I don't know, confrontation, uh, why you always um, seek high risk opportunities. We're talking about, um, behaviors that almost are so subtle, as you said, that build the framework of our life. And so hopefully by the end of this podcast, you'll be able to have some reflection on your own behaviors that could be these storylines. So sorry, I didn't want to take away from where no, you're going. No, that's just-
0: really good. And you're really filling in the gaps and um, seeing my blind spots. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the uh, another trap that I was thinking of as you're talking is we can just one and done it and go, Oh, I've sorted it out. I'm a type five or if, um, what's the other one? Myers Briggs or some of the other personality type things. I'm an (laughs) NFJKBCD. You know what I'm saying? Like you, you won and done it. You go, Oh, that's me. And then that's it. And you put it on the shelf and you're done. And I mean, you could do that if you want to, but really you've just scratched the surface. The juice comes from sitting with it for years and years and years And maybe, I hope that doesn't put you off and thinking, oh my gosh, it's just too much, it's too much. It's an exciting journey. And hopefully one of the messages we've been starting to communicate with this podcast is that things are a journey and it's tempting to just think about everything as a sprint, especially when you're younger and go, oh, I just want to achieve this really quickly and tell me everything I need to know. But some things, man, they just take years of pondering on and 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 for me like i have new realizations with it almost weekly of just things i hadn't considered or thought about mm. so yep it is an ongoing ongoing process but it's fun it's it's a lifelong journey and you've got to be compassionate to yourself but you also have to be really honest and trust me the good stuff is where you're just brutally honest with yourself even though it hurts it's gonna hurt, but you go, oh man, and you you feel it. Like, it's come across something in, in one of the books or something, and you just like you know, like you're talking about before. It feels like they're just reading your mail. It feels like they're speaking. Like, how do they know that I do this? Like, how is this so detailed? And that's what it'll feel like um, when you when you come across those particular things. So again, if you really want to. Get started, I would recommend the road back to you. Um also the Enneagram Institute.com is a fantastic resource. Um and lots of these resources have different things. So like one might hit one aspect of it and, and another resource will hit other things that you might not have heard before or or they might restate it in a new way. So yeah, there's there's lots of resources out there. I'm just gonna give a few that I found really helpful over the years. Um, the other thing is there's plenty of podcasts as well. Like, uh, one particular one that comes to mind that I really like is Sarah Jane Case. Um, her podcast, Enneagram and Coffee. She brings quite a balanced perspective and she's very funny. um, and also very empathetic. Okay, so I'll do a brief touching on the nine Enneagram type descriptions. Um, but again, go to the website and dig into it for yourself. There's so many parts of it that you can look at, like the wings. Um, so you, 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 the basic gist is you identify with a core number and the numbers go from one through to nine. And that becomes your center. And then you can have a wing on either side of that number. So you could be an eight wing seven or an eight wing nine. Um, you're not going to be an eight wing three. It's going to be on either side and generally one wing will be stronger than the other but quite often you'll you'll flip back and forward between them. There's also lines of stress and lines of health. This is getting quite in depth and um, again, this is just the first part on this. This will probably be a multi-part uh, series but um, yeah, so there's lines of stress and health. There's like what your number looks like in stress and what it looks like when it's really healthy. Um, there's the shadow side of each number. So there's multiple different things you can look at, but let's just quickly touch on like the general descriptions of them from the enneagram Institute.com. So number one is the reformer, which is often called the perfectionist. So they're described as the rational, idealistic type, principled, purposeful, self-controlled, and perfectionistic. Then the enneagram number two is the helper, Um, They're described as the caring, interpersonal type, demonstrative, generous, people-pleasing, and possessive. Number three is the achiever. So they're the success-oriented, pragmatic type, adaptive, excelling, driven, and image-conscious. Number four is the individualist or the romantic. Um, They are the sensitive, withdrawn type. They're expressive, dramatic, self-absorbed, and temperamental number five is the investigator they are described as the intense cerebral type perceptive innovative secretive and isolated number six is the loyalist the committed security oriented type engaging responsible anxious and suspicious number seven is the enthusiast the busy fun loving type spontaneous versatile distractible and scattered eight is the challenger the powerful dominating type self-confident decisive willful and confrontational number nine is the peacemaker the easygoing self-effacing type receptive reassuring agreeable and complacent So there was a lot there and it is a lot to take in, especially if you haven't read through these before or you've never touched on the Enneagram before. So I'd encourage you, go to the website, have a quick look at the numbers and if you click on the numbers, it comes up with um, a little diagram about how they or where they are on the, the overall Enneagram diagram and where they go to in growth, where they go to in stress and then it has a type one in brief, for example, and gives a more cumbersome breakdown of the number and key motivations. They also give examples of famous people who identify as that type. So can you, just as an example, we're talking about,
1: you know, this isn't a personality test. And when it's read off like that, it can almost seem counter. It's like, oh, you've just read my personality and that's who I am. Why can't I just read it and... That's it. Um, could you maybe give an example um, with, let's say, the four, because um, I know you are a four. Can you give an example with the four as to how this peels back deeper than just reading that statement and going, oh, well, I identify with that, that's who I am, and how maybe even sharing how you began to identify you were a four, especially when you mistyped yourself. Um yeah.
0: Uh, good question. So I think at first it does start out as a, just a simple typology, like a simple description of personality aspects that you identify with. And it kind of has to start there because when you're first learning about it, it's just so overwhelming how much information there is. Mm. And so you kind of just have to start with something that something solid you can latch on to. Like, oh, I identify with this particular aspect of this personality type that they're describing so therefore maybe I am that number and again just make sure to to realize that these numbers are just like imagine them as um colors like they are the overall color like blue but within blue there's millions of shades of blue so they're very like broad stroke outlines of A personality and also realize that everybody can branch out a little bit and everybody's going to have all of the numbers in their personality to an extent but some of them are just way more hyped up than others so for me um, identifying as a type four type four if you imagine it on a graph is like really high And the other numbers are very low in comparison. Um, But you can start to like incorporate the energy of other numbers into your personality. And for me, like incorporating eight energy into my personality is an important way that I can grow. And I can become a more well-rounded person. And not just focus on this one narrative of the four and just over-identify with it. The Enneagram is all about... Showing you how you're actually over-identifying with a particular story and just clinging to it for dear life when really there's there's so much more.
1: Mm. Yeah, I remember when I was doing a course back, I was 18 years old um, and it was alongside high school and we had to do this test and one of the things they said was how patient are you and they gave a scenario of... Uh, whatever it was waiting in a queue and you had to rate what you would do and then they would take that and they'd be able to t- tell you well this is on this scale how patient you are so I did this test and I put my hand up I remember putting my hand up in the middle of it and asking the lecturer I said I'm, I'm just confused because this if, if I have to wait for too long this is what I want to do which was punch the person in the face who was making me wait. (laughs) But what I would actually do is probably be gracious in in the situation, whatever it was. And he said, ah, you see what's happened is you've grown. There's been growth. And I think of the Enneagram as the same way, that you can look at it and you can say, and a lot of these personality test things, you can look at them and say, this is who I am. But growth is when you can identify, oh, I identify with those motivations, but I don't have to act them out. I can actually, uh, by identifying them, and I can grow beyond that to be a more full and whole person. I don't have to be, like you said, stuck in the box of this is my personality and therefore this is how I must act out, which is the identity dilemma that is the the real pandemic of the world is the identity dilemma. We're always trying to find who we are and we keep putting labels and putting ourselves in boxes. And I guess what the Enneagram does is says, you don't have to live in that box. Absolutely. And that is just so counter the culture of, of personality tests and identity crisis because it's saying – we're giving you the tools to grow out of your personality into the fullness of who you are and, and the spirit that is you. If, you know, my full name is Matthew Daniel Goodat. And who is Matthew Daniel Goodat? I've spent most of my life putting on labels and trying to figure that out. And I guess the Enneagram at first, it was like, oh, another way to slap another label on. I'm a number seven. Um, You know, I love fun, I love that stuff, but I'm actually taking that and going, oh my goodness, like, I'm free from having to follow these patterns in my life. And one of the ones that I was going to briefly share was risk-taking. I actually read an article that talks about um, event-related potentials, uh, ERP, and it talks about basically when when you face a high-risk situation... the the brain stimulation can involve uh, event-related potentials um, and it can also bring uh, negative-related potentials when the the risk doesn't work out. So they usually test this on gambling games because it's the easiest way to test it. So, for example, we're playing a game of poker. There's a big risk and you can throw yourself into that risk and if it works out, you're going to have positive brain stimulus If it doesn't work out, the negative can be stronger than the positive. But my personality has always been drawn to high risk. So I'm reading the seven, right? And it's saying that the seven loves um, stimulation. The seven is always looking for stimulation. It's always wanting more. It's the glutton. The seven is wanting to have fun all the time, every time, every day. And so I'm reading this and I'm seeing myself in this. Then I'm learning about this brain stimulation and I'm like, this is why I'm acting out continual high-risk situations, which when I'm by myself, you know, it's only myself, but when I'm responsible for my family, the danger is I'm going to put my family in high-risk situations just for the sake of chasing that constant glutton of a high. Wow. And so in that, here's an example of how the Enneagram snapped me out of my personality rather than reinforcing, oh, this is who you are. You know, you're always going to be chasing highs. Good on you. Oh, uh,
0: go and live life. But he was actually going, hey, you don't have to do that now. Wow. That's perfect. Like, I mean, the, the best illustration and, and great story um, you don't have to do that anymore. That's that's it. That's the juice. And, and it's the deeper that you go into it that you start to find the stuff out. Like if you do just bail on it at the surface level of, oh, I'm this number and then leave, it's like, oh, well, you missed it, man. You missed all of the goodness. And the goodness comes through the pain, which we've talked about many times in our suffering episode in particular, is that there is so much beauty in the pain and in the suffering um so yeah what a cool way to to illustrate what we're talking about here um and that does lead into shadow work which i think is pretty much what you've just been describing is what you've you've done is some deep shadow work into your number and i want to read again from the complete enneagram By Beatrice Chestnut uh, And this is just such a good description of what shadow is Personality as ego and shadow What you see and don't see in yourself So just as light illuminating an object Also casts an area of darkness Said Carl Jung The conscious brightness in how you see yourself Creates a shadow It's a shadow aspect of personality That goes unseen like a blind spot Attributes you think of as bad, like feelings of anger and jealousy, hatred and inferiority, get relegated to your shadow and become unconscious. The shadow represents everything we refuse to acknowledge about ourselves that nonetheless impacts the way we behave. So, being blind to parts of ourselves means that there is often a difference between the person we think we are or the person we would like to see ourselves as, and who we really are as we walk through the world. We each repress our shadow aspects because they make us feel uncomfortable or bad about ourselves. But making these qualities unconscious gives them the power to create unintended problems in our lives and relationships when they influence us in ways we don't see. Developing our true self requires us to know, accept, and integrate all parts of ourselves, including our shadow elements. The Enneagram can help us do that. Because the Enneagram gives us a way to see our dark sides without judgment, it's an invaluable tool for helping us accept and manage the descent. Our human egoic tendency is to want to feel good and to avoid feeling bad about ourselves. But without a way of recognizing, accepting, and addressing all of who we are, including the shadow side and difficult parts of our experience, our personal growth stops and we remain asleep to our potential. The Enneagram reveals the truth of what we might see as the good and the bad parts of our habitual programming, allowing us to compassionately address the disowned and fixated or stuck parts of our personalities and to embrace ourselves as we truly are. That is just so good, and man, what a book. Uh, The Complete Enneagram, Beatrice Chestnut. Um, But one word that stuck to me there was, um, we remain asleep, asleep to our potential. And it's just, yeah, that's my experience completely with the Enneagram is how much it has shown me about my shadow side and what is repressed and my blind spots, things I don't see. And it's really uh, enriched my life as a result. Um, Because when you can see that stuff or when you start to notice those, those unconscious behaviors, they suddenly become conscious and then you kind of stop doing them. You realize sometimes how silly they are and you're like, ah. You just kind of observe yourself in the third person a little bit for a second and go, oh, why am I doing that? So what does that look like then
1: when you're doing doing this kind of work? Because I'm aware that, to play the devil's advocate, somebody can listen to this and be like, yeah, you're just doing this fad. Or, yeah, it's just like shadow work is something that, that in, in the big picture, it doesn't really change anything. But let's fast forward this. 40 years from now because seeds grow and what we're talking about here is pulling up some of the unhealthy seeds people who do shadow work what does it look like in the manifestation
0: of how they live 30 40 years down the line yeah well okay so the the enneagram was introduced to the modern world in 1915 so it's definitely not a fad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's um, yeah. It's been around for a long time and people have been doing shadow work for a long time. Like you think of famous philosophers. That's just one example. Um, people have been digging into that, that, that side of existence for a long time. And this isn't new. Like the Enneagram isn't a new technology. It was developed um, a long time ago and has a rich heritage there. So I think it, that just speaks to the fact that this is something that humans overall um, struggle with or have to work through over the course of their lifetime. And we're privileged enough that we're uh, in a modern world where we don't have to fight off lions and tigers in order to survive and go and hunt deer to eat for dinner or whatever. Um, and so we've got all this time to sit around and chat about our shadow self, but does that answer your question? Like, uh, with- yeah, I, I
1: think so. I think because I think we, in a sense, talking about the shadow self is putting a framework around something that humans have been doing since the beginning of time, but we've just got perhaps tools that meet that are relevant for our, our life today. But I guess what I'm saying is, um, people could look at that and go, "Yeah, well, good on you for doing that stuff." It's not going to change me. Right. But, but does it, does it, how, like, and not just changing you, like, cause it's obviously changed you now, but come on, mean like 30 years down the line, you're just going to be the same Stevie,
0: you're not? Like, how <laughs> does it in the long term, you know what I mean? Yeah, okay. Well, if they said that to me, I'm like, well, that's, that's your assessment of me. That's not, that's not me. Um, like 30 years from now, I'm going to be, looking at new, new things and, and kind of continuing the journey. It's not a stagnation. It's definitely a journey. Um, and, but then uh, maybe to your point, there are some people that I've talked to about this who it's, they're just like, why would I do that? It's, um, I don't want to, like we were saying about earlier, put myself in a box or, um, some people even see, Oh, well, God made me like this. Why would I change? Or, or something along those lines. And yeah, sure. So for some people, it's not for them. Maybe they will change in the future. Maybe not. That's for them to decide, I guess. Um, but it is a journey of self-discovery. And that's part of why in ancient traditions, when it was first kind of being established, it, you didn't talk about it to people. Um, it was a deeply personal thing. and yeah, I think it's only now in modern history that it's kind of resurfaced and or just become popular in mainstream culture. So yeah, and I'd say
1: to that we, we are, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, physiological, we care about physiological things primarily. Uh, and then we move up the, the pyramid, and finally we get this place of, um, uh, the, the, oh, what's the top one called? Um, Self-actualization. Act, actualization. And I think as a society, we have lived, even though there's craziness all the time, we've lived in incredible wealth um, as, as global, the, the global poverty level, what it means to live in poverty um, has almost lifted globally um, as the living conditions through, through technology and stuff have changed. Um, and so I think we're in a time where self-actualization is possible, where perhaps, like you said, we are fighting off tigers and wolves, and we're in a time where we don't have to worry about the physiological. We're in a time where we don't have to worry about trying to find belonging groups. Uh, we can pretty much find belonging any internet group we want now. And we can actually think about things and go, flip, dude, maybe... Maybe there's something th- that's not right in me. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's so funny because uh, you're you're absolutely right. We always go to the other or the outside to find the problem before realizing, oh, maybe it is me. Yep. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah. So, Defense
0: mechanisms, eh? Yep. Yeah. So moving further into the shadow work, um, again, it is a personal. Journey, And I don't really have... That's why I have no interest in trying to sell this or proselytize this to somebody, especially if if they don't want to know about it, if they're just, like, not interested, or if they're just not... You can tell they're not ready for it. I'm like, I have zero interest in, in just talking about it to someone for the sake of creating a conversation starter at a party or something. Like, that's just... I don't want to do that. Yeah. Like, to me, it's a very personal thing and has been such a powerful tool in my life that I'll only I only really would like to share it with people who are interested or who do genuinely want to learn about this stuff
1: yeah yeah I was at a, I was officiating a wedding two weeks ago now and the the verse from the bible that I used was um, don't awaken a love until the time is right which is in probably the most uh, poetic ver- uh, book in the Bible, Song of Solomon's the um, Song of Songs and it's essentially saying it's got this th- thing that is saying look when you open when you open the can of worms of love it, it will lead to something so much bigger than yourself and if you try and open that can before you're ready to handle what comes with it, You are going to position yourself in a place where, A, you're not going to get as much as you could have got from it, uh, and, B, it's going to be, in some cases, unproductive. So I think it's the same case when you're talking about people who aren't interested in doing shadow work. It's not that, oh, that person is not interested in shadow work. It's like the time in their life is not ripe. That's right. For that to happen, and you yep. need to wait for fruit to ripen to to be ready to uh, you know be fruitful and to um, get the most out of it.:
0: Yeah, and that's why I was trying to stress before not to rush the process because I was 29 I think when I first read the Road back to you um, and I like you say, I, the time was ripe. I was at the perfect place where I needed it. And I think that's when you pursue things the hardest is when you are at a place of desperation, like you know that you know that you need this. And and then when you start into the journey, like as soon as I started into it, I was like, oh, wow, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. Yeah.
1: And hopefully this is some people listening to this and the time is is, you know, burning in their heart to go, you know, this is actually pulling me in. But if it's not, that's okay you don't have to solve the Rubik's Cube um you can just be on the journey where you're at right yeah
0: yeah yeah that's it that's it and you might put it on the shelf for 10 years and come back to it when uh what's the there's that quote I can never remember who said it but the quote is what um uh what aids you in the morning of life or the stories and Narratives that aid you in the morning of life, they restrict and kill you in the afternoon or the evening of life. And sometimes it's not until you're really um, in the constriction of stories that are just dragging you down or things in your life that are just dragging you down that you come to these things out of desperation. It's like you crawl to them going, "Uh, I just I need help, and and I don't know where to go, and I don't know what to look for. Mm. And for me, this was one of the things that kind of rescued me from that. Yeah. And and I, um, to bring in my spiritual side to this and to faith
1: uh, in, in relationship with God, I guess for me, it deepened my relationship with God because it allowed me to stop having to be right about everything and start to even look at my own self and go, maybe I was trying to be right about things to reinforce this narrative in this box and these things that were in my life. And in doing shadow work, I realized, oh my goodness, God is, is bigger. God is more accepting. God is, is more wild than the little, you know, I painted God to be a type seven. You know what (laughs) I mean?
0: Like he was me. (laughs) It's funny. We do create God in our own image, don't we?
1: Oh, and he's, it's so freeing to know part of God is a perfectionist. Um, The detail of how he orchestrates things. Um, part of God is the introspective um, part of God. You know, we the, the Bible verse, that says we're made in God's image and we see the collection of the human race. I mean, think about that. This is a thought for you. When God says we'll make man in our image, in the Western society, we individualize that. So we go, oh, I'm a reflection of God. But what if God was speaking collectively? And what if he's saying human race, all the the personalities, all the people have come to reflect the fullness of who God is. It's not just God's a type seven. It's not just uh, God thinks and acts like this in, in predictive every, you know, he's not predictive texting everything he does but there's a richness to who God is and how big he is. And I think the Enneagram, um, looping that background, I think the Enneagram really helped me to discover that part of God. That I had taken him and said, he'd like me. And I realized now he's not. Yes. Yeah. He's, 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 there's a reflection of me in him, but there's so much more.
0: Yeah. Cause just as you're broadening your perspective of who you are and realizing that that, um, narrative was actually the false self that you've crafted to survive trauma, um, Just like you do that, you you start to broaden your mind of who God is and realize, oh, I've put God in a box as well. Yep. Um, So exactly that. Um, I just wanted to kind of dive into your story a little more and just like probe for, so like you've sat with the Enneagram for I don't know how long now. Um, You talked a little bit about uh, what you've learned with risk-taking with Type 7. Um, What other work... Or areas, have you found it to have guided you first into suffering or into the path of descent and then maybe even back out of it? Yeah, sure. Um, hmm. Well, let me
1: just say it does feel like an unfinished process. Um, um, Definitely. There's times when I feel like I've I've sort of wrapped up one segment of shadow work and I've gone away or something changed I've come to the end of, of that and there's times where I feel I'm going into a new part of my life That I'm going oh here's, here's something I've never seen before and that that's a process of months or years and then I'll come to the end and, and right now I guess I feel like I'm probably in the middle of another section of discovering who I am and it's it's terrifying um, and one of the things that helped me with the Enneagram that other personality tests don't talk about and you referenced was the, the health scale. Yeah. Which, um, I remember what, remember when we first got into it, you were reading all of the personally, <laughs> personality types and what it looks like when they're all in full health. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that? I think so. Yeah. We're- it was like they were all like high on weed. It was like they were <laughs> just absolutely contented with everything. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah,
0: yeah. It was just like pure bliss. Pure bliss. Is uh, that one with everything in the world? No, completely forgiven reality for being so weird, uh, yeah. and hard, yeah, and traumatic. And, that, and that, but that's the the. I
1: sort of reflect on that as I've done the Enneagram and I've thought, isn't that what the The power of maturing as a human is, is that you end up being so true to yourself, but so similar in a state of humanity that you've reached a contentment. And again, to borrow from a a, a word, a scripture from the Bible, that says, um, uh, it is a blessing, it says something like, um, for a man to be content with his lot in life is a blessing and um, so that health scale for me, uh, which is a question you're asking, what has that been for me? The health scale for me allowed me to look at the, my motivations and the way that I was behaving and go, is this leading me towards or away from that health objective? And in the midst of my depression, when I was going through, waking up and just thinking, why do I want to even be alive? I was aware of the health of the seven dipping into excess to try and cope. And I identified that and realized that I had to start recognizing that I had everything I needed, that I didn't need external stimulation. I didn't need external glutton of experience of um uh and you can go in any for some people it's um sex and um i was actually just recently watching something on youtube about a, a sex addict who um just is completely caught in this trap of looking for that external simulation of intimacy with people and And we can look at that and go, oh, that's crazy. But that's no difference from the drug addict who's a heroin addict who's just looking for the next hit. Um, And it's no different from the work addict who's just trying to get the next bit of affirmation uh, to the gambler. And I was able to go, dude, like, I don't need to go to that length to get more dopamine and endorphins to find happiness. But the healthy seven recognizes happiness in everything. And in my depression, that pulled me towards, I guess, what you could uh, figure, figuratively put as the light at the end of the tunnel in going, I have peace within myself. I have connectivity with God. Um,
0: yeah, big, big answer. Hope that gives you some insight. It does. And if, uh, I almost would be suspicious if it was a short answer because again, <laughs> this is a huge journey, huge topic and we re- you really can't do it justice by just giving some glib answer because this is very, very real. And the more you get into it, the more you realize how deep it can go. Um, just when you think that you've done it all and you've clocked that game, you really haven't, there is so Mm. much in, in this. Um, so yeah, I just want to just wrap it up here. Um, we can definitely do another episode on this another time, but, um, I think there's been a really rigorous discussion and I think we've done a good job of, of it's, it's kind of an introduction, but it's also quite, um, deep as well, like digging into it and not just, on the surface level of introductory things but if you want to obviously carry on with learning it yourself then go to those sources that i mentioned earlier and i will leave those in the show notes as well i'm going to wrap it up from this with this quote from uh, don richard Rizzo, and i'm reading from the wisdom of the enneagram the process of transforming the heart can be difficult because as we open it we inevitably encounter our own pain and become more aware of the pain of others in fact much of our personality is designed to keep us from experiencing the suffering we close down the sensitivity of our hearts so that we can block our pain and get on with things but we are never entirely successful in avoiding it often we are aware of our suffering just enough to make ourselves and everyone around us miserable Carl Jung's famous dictum that neurosis is a substitute for legitimate suffering points to this truth. But if we are not willing to experience our own hurt and grief, it can never be healed. Shutting out our real pain also renders us unable to feel joy, compassion, love, or any of the other capacities of the heart and i just think i mean that's another great resource the wisdom of the enneagram Um, but i just think there is just such a a wealth of um, knowledge and understanding that can be found in this Um, so hopefully it's been helpful to listeners and um, if you loved it let us know and we'll do another one Thanks so much for listening, everyone. If you like the podcast, please consider leaving a review and following the show on Instagram. The support means a lot and is super helpful for the algorithms. All original music is by me, Stephen Garton. And thanks, as always, to my co-host, Matt Goodat for the chats. All right, I'll see you all in the next one. Keep it fresh.